We're good? Good morning, everyone. All right. Um, today's message is called, Can You See Him Now? It's in John chapter 9. Um, I just want to say, if you're first-time visitors, uh, I'm not Pastor Steve. Pastor Steve is in Arizona right now, uh, visiting his son, who is a little bit sick. Um, and so, um, if you just ever think of him or think about his family, uh, please just lift, lift him up in prayer. Um, they would love that very much. If, that's, if there's anything you want to do, that's something you all can do. Amen? Um, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and our beautiful ushers will get one to you as well. Amen? We're good? And so I know um, on Sunday mornings, if you've been here um, for the past weeks, we've been kind of going through the book of Hebrews. Anybody here this past couple weeks? Right. So we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and I was really tempted in all my ways to do chapter 4 this week. I don't know how Pastor Steve would have felt about that, but until he gives me the green light, this vehicle is parked. Um. Now, before we start going into this chapter, if you have no idea of what's going on in the book of Hebrews, that's absolutely okay, because I'm going to sum it up for you in about 20 seconds. The writer of this book, Hebrews, is stressing to these Hebrew people that everything you've been observing, everything that you've been doing, everything that you've been practicing has been pointing to someone's, uh, someone and something greater. Okay, you got that? And so if you were here for last week's message, chapter 3 was talking about who? Moses. Oh, yeah, Jesus. But it was talking about Moses, Momo. You guys know Momo? Moses. Everyone here knows Moses. He was the one that led the people out of Egypt. He brought them, through, uh, brought them out of slavery and through the Red Sea and on the cuffs of the Promised Land. And you see, although Moses was a great leader, on a side note, let's remember that it wasn't Moses who got you there, right? It, it was God working through Moses. Moses was just being obedient. And so the writer, the, basically the writer is saying, before you start idolizing your forefathers, let me tell you that this story is telling a much greater story, which is the gospel. And Moses just represents the ultimate leader, which is Jesus. And guess what? That's the entire Bible. Like, that's the entire Bible. You can say that about any prophet, about any priest, about any king. These people who God chose, who God raised up, who God anointed in the Old Testament were only a shadow of what was to come. So all of their failures, all of their success, these people that you read about, uh, was always pointing forward this way, this way, that way, to a greater thing. And so what is this greater thing? It's Jesus. Jesus is the greater than. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater than. You see, the writer is trying to get it into these people's heads that Jesus Christ is the main point, and the main point is Jesus Christ. Every sacrifice, every Sabbath, every feast, everything that you guys observe and obey has been in some way, shape, and form always pointing to the Son of God. And so if you remember anything in the next few months, just remember this. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is far more superior, far more greater, far more better, far more beautiful than any angel, 
any person and any kind of religious activity that makes up Christianity today. Anything. And so with all that being said, what does that mean for us? Well, if you're writing this down, it means the central point of our Christian walks is to know Jesus and to love him. That's it. The main point is Jesus, and Jesus is the main point. And so how do we do that? Well, the writer says to remember. The writer says to remember. Remember lest you forget. What are we prone to forget? The good news. And what I mean by that is not the payment that Jesus made. What I mean by that is the depth of the payment, the weight of it. We hear it all the time, but do you feel the weight of it? Do you see the depth of it? Not just knowing the gospel up here, but knowing it right here. You see, that's why we take communion once a month. I would like to do it every week. That'd be cool, but we do it once a month. Remembering his body broken for our brokenness and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Because it's there at the cross where Jesus laid down his life because why? He had you in mind. And so the writer stresses to the believers in this book to look back. That's all he's saying. Look back at what Jesus has done. Continue to look back so that in the present, now, we are encouraged to look forward to what Jesus is going to do. Because all that stuff that's happening right now in the middle today is nothing compared to the kingdom that's coming. But this doesn't mean that we're never going to go through trials. This doesn't mean that we're never going to experience pain or we're never going to experience brokenness or people are never going to let us down. It just means that this isn't it. That's all that means. And so as Christians, my exhortation to you is we don't hedge our bets on anything down here because the better thing is coming. It's coming. And when Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to make all things new. The Bible says it. I believe it. Get on board. And I just want you to understand that this new thing has already begun inside of each and every one of you. See, the book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement. So be encouraged. There is no other book that references the Old Testament as much as this one. I still have a very long way to go. I'm still diving deep into this. And so, but that's pretty much the gist of things. So if you remember anything, as Pastor Steve teaches through the book of Hebrews, is Jesus Christ is the main point, and the main point is who? Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the entire Bible, which now brings us into the Gospel of John, and we will be in chapter 9. Let's start off by re uh, reading verses 1 through 12, and then what I'm going to try to do is bring us up to speed. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to bring us up to speed. Ready? Okay, verse 1 says this, as he passed by, it says he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4 says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the, uh, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. 
Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. Verse 12 said, They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. You're already speaking to us, so we're just waiting in expectation of what you have for us, Lord. And ultimately, what you have for us is you. And so help us to see you with the right lens on, Help us to see this passage with the right lens on. And I just ask that you would bless us with your presence and grace this morning. Illuminate our hearts, Lord God, to see the gospel clearly. And I pray that you would do a mighty work in us uh, this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, um, anybody know C.S. Lewis? I don't know him personally. C.S. Lewis said something in his book, and I didn't really read it all, but it was just an article, uh, which was in, he wrote, uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, He talked about the big uproar uh, of what Jesus claimed himself to be. Um, He often heard uh, people say things like, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great teacher. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral leader, uh, as a great moral leader, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You see, the whole point Lewis was trying to make is that a lot of people in the gospel and still to this day had different opinions about Jesus. I mean, you read it. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say this. Some say that. And because of this, for us now in our generation here, they would believe Jesus to be whatever they wanted him to be. That's the problem. As long as Jesus kind of fits the mold of my life, But the problem didn't lie in their opinions or what they believed about him. That's not where the problem was. You see, the problem would be in the fact that Jesus all throughout the gospel would make the claim that he is God. He said, before Abraham was I am. That's ego and me. It was the same language that was being used in the Old Testament. And so C.S. Lewis would come to this one conclusion, and I'm going to kind of put it into my own words, so it's like a C.S. David kind of thing. He says it's undeniable, like it's unmistakable, like you cannot, it's undeniable as you read through the gospel that Jesus is who he says he is. And so whether you believe him to be God or not doesn't affect him, what he's saying, it, but it does affect you. And this is my point. We can either accept Jesus for all that he is, everything, you accept him for all that he is, or, or, We make him less than he is, less than what he's supposed to be, and we reject him completely. Why? Because this is what C.S. Lewis is saying. There is no middle ground. You see, to pick and choose whether he's just a great teacher or a great moral leader doesn't change anything about him. It doesn't. You either accept him as the God of your life, or, this is what he's saying, if you make him to be anything less, then you've rejected him completely. Completely. You see, Jesus always presented himself this way. It's so that at the end of our lives, we know exactly who we chose and what we chose. 
You see, Jesus made it very clear about himself all throughout Scripture. And here's one example. If you ever read through the, anybody read through the Sermon on the Mount? All right, Sermon on the Mount. If you ever read through the Sermon on the Mount, you would see that there are only two doors. That's how he ends it. There's only two doors. You would see that Jesus presents, oh, there's only two houses, one on the sand, one on the rock. And then he also presents there's only two paths. There's one way, there's one wide road and one, uh, one narrow road. And so when I, when I was reading this, and I think when most people read this is what I believe is, most people think that all the good people are on the narrow road and all the bad people stand on the wide road. No, you see, what Jesus is trying to say is that everyone here stands on the wide path and I stand on this narrow path all by myself. That's what he's saying. And what Jesus is saying is, and what Jesus is doing, he's calling out to everyone on this wide path saying, come to me. Like, come this way if you want to live. Come to me if you want life. And everyone on this wide path is now looking at this narrow path and just seeing one person there. With all of the other options they have, they just see one person standing all by himself. You see, Jesus makes it very clear to us that the way is narrow because there's no room for any other gods. The way is narrow because there's only one option. And he's making it very clear to us that true life, this eternal life, this Zoe life that he's talking about, the abundant life that he promises is only found in him. That's it. And so Jesus does this throughout the gospel, and he does this by presenting himself as all of the essential things in life. The first thing he compares himself to is water, and not just any water, like the water. In John chapter 4, he tells this Samaritan, anybody John chapter 4, if you're familiar, if not, I'm going to just, real quick. In John chapter 4, um, he tells a Samaritan woman, if you keep drinking from this well, if you keep coming back here, you're only going to get thirsty again. Do you remember that? Yeah. If you only knew who was talking to you right now, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Amen. You see, this woman was someone who carried constant shame, constant guilt because of her lifestyle. Just how it was. And she believed that the solution to her problems would be to find another well or to find another source of water. And this Jesus person, he must be the guy to take me there. You see, oftentimes people think that the solution to their problems is to just have more of what they already have. If I just get to here in my business, uh, then I'll be content. If I just get her in my life, then I'll be complete. If I just do this, if I just do that, then everything will be okay. Jesus is saying, I did not come into your life to give you more of anything. I've come here to give you something that you've never had, ever. You see, this woman went from relationship to relationship, from partner to partner, and the one she's with now, she's not, it's not even her husband. It's the choices that she made in her life that left her broken and constantly weighed down. But I'll let you guys in on a little secret. Jesus loves the broken. Jesus loves the dirty. Jesus loves the unclean. Jesus loves the one who don't got it all together. He said, I didn't come for those who are well, but those who are sick. And so here at this drinking well where Jesus would meet this woman who is tired and desperate, that's you, man. 
And the invitation he sets before her is not believe in me and you'll have a better life. That's not what he said. Believe in me and your life will be better. No, the invitation set before her is believe in me and I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to give you a new life. We're going to start over. A life that is never ending. A life that never fades. It'll be rivers of living water. That's what he said. Springing up out of you. Right? Like that, like Uncle Lawrence, like just that. Yeah, like that, uh. But this water, this source, doesn't come from another husband. This living water, this life, this thing doesn't come from another well. Jesus is saying the source is me. And he does this again in John 6. He does this again in John 6 as he compares himself to now the bread. And not just any bread, right, like the bread. Right? He says, I am the bread of life. He who follows me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. You see, Jesus told these people that the only reason you are following me is because I fed you. That's, the, that's kind of what's going on. You come after me with all of this zeal and effort only because I can provide you with something so temporal. So the question he would ask them is, why would, you work for hard, why would you work so hard for something that never lasts? And if the only reason you are here is because what I can give to you, then let me ask you this. What happens if I don't feed you? What happens when your life is not the way you expected it to be? What happens when everything starts to fall apart in your life? Will you continue to follow me? You see, what Jesus is doing in both of these passages is he wants us to understand just one thing. And this is the one thing. That true life, the abundant life, is not, in found, is not ever found in what you have, but who you have. True life, the abundant life, is not found in what you have, but who you have. What he's saying in John 6 is don't make my benefits your bread, make me your bread. What he's saying in John 4 is don't think I've come to show you another well or another source of the water or another source of water. What he's saying in John 4 is I am the well and I am the water. And what he's saying to me and you this morning ultimately is he's saying make me your life and you'll lack nothing. Nothing. That's the promise. This is what it means to be full. This is what it means to never be hungry again to never thirst again. Why? How would there be any room left if Jesus occupies every space and corner of every room of your heart? And that takes time. And so you're going to help me get there and I'm going to help you get there. That's what we got to do. And then he moves on to say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're in John 9. You see, John chapter 9 is a continuation of actually John chapter 8's theme, which is light. Now, light is always used for the purpose of seeing, all right? Light is always used for the purpose of seeing. For the people back then in the ancient world, light wasn't something you just took for granted. Now, like, you don't know how good you got it until it's gone, right? Like, you could be cooking short ribs at 8 p.m., and if you live in the house lots, it's already dark with the lights on. Like, Kauai is dark. And at night, even with lights, it's, it's still dark. And so our neighborhood had a blackout while I was trying to be, like, Korean chef for my wife. Uh, 
barbecuing um, at night the other week. Man, and I was outside, lights went out. Now you got thin meat on a high flame. That's a dangerous situation. <laughs> but I thank, I thank God for my iPhone light, my flashlight, uh, right? Like, um, and lights we can, I can use during that time. Um, I have plenty of lights at my house. And for the nation of Israel, and so for the nation of Israel, light had such a great meaning and significance within their story. And I want us to remember this. You see, Jesus did not say, I am the light of the world on some random day at any given day, uh, at any given time of the week. No, he chose the week where God's people would celebrate, the, uh, would celebrate a feast that remembered their time in the wilderness. Because it was there in the wilderness where they were led by God. If you guys read Exodus, as in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Anybody remember? There's great significance. And so at this feast, what they would do is they would light torches all around the temple, uh, temple area, which commemorated the fire that guided them and protected them. All right, so they would look at that, be like, that's it. Everybody outside of Jerusalem, look into Jerusalem, be like, the party is lit, it's going, right? And they would remember. They would remember the God that guided them and protected them. But the most important aspect of this flame is that every time they would look up at this pillar of fire, they would, there were, they would be reminded of one thing, that God is with them. God is with with you. And so on this last day of the feast, uh, feast as all of the torches are, are no longer lit, and so on the eighth day, all the torches would burn out, Jesus would stand in the temple and cry out to everyone who was listening, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now once again, like every chapter, the invitation to life is given out. It's set before you, and it's ready for anyone who's, uh, it's ready for you, for anyone here that's ready to receive it. Amen? Now let's begin in verse one. It, this part is, this is it. This is, yeah. As he passed by, it says he saw, we're going to read it one more time. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As I said earlier, light is always used for the purpose of seeing. And so on this day, both Jesus and his disciples would pass by a blind man, um, would pass by a man who was blind, as it says here in verse 1, from birth. On this day, they would both see the man's current condition, but only one of them would see his future purpose. You see, in verse 3, it says, what Jesus saw in this man was that God was about to do something amazing in his life. Something amazing. But his disciples couldn't even see past the reason of why he is the way he is or how long he's been that way or who might have been involved in his life that he is the way he is. You see, all of their focus was on his condition and because of this, that's all they could see. My question to you this morning is, do we tend to see other people that way? 
Are there people in your life right now that you might have written off because they've been this way since you've known them? Nothing has ever changed about them. Why would it change now? I would just like to say that God can and will do something amazing in that someone's life at any given moment. How do I know that? Because he did it in yours. And because the human heart can be so deceitful, we can oftentimes see ourselves as much better than we actually are. You see, what happens is we tend to give ourselves more grace than anybody else. But the truth is, and if we're being honest with each other, I can be just as rebellious. I can be just as stubborn. I can be just as disobedient as the people who are still chasing after the wind. And so what we get from this passage is that Jesus not only sees the here and now, our current condition, but he also sees the final results, our future purpose. And as long as there is breath in those people's lungs and in our lungs, God is not done with anyone. And so neither should we. And so Jesus continues to say to his disciples in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5 says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples or right, you see, what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples is you'll be the ones to take the torch soon. That's what's going on here. Because in a little while, night is coming when no one can work. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his death. What he's talking about is his short time left to fulfill his mission and purpose here on earth. Because in just a few months from now, Jesus would be taken away from them and they'll be left to themselves. You see, what he's trying to create in his disciples is a sense of urgency. He wants them and all of us to see that our time here on earth is only for a moment next to eternity. Like a vapor, like here today, gone today. Like you hear here today, gone tomorrow, like it's here today, gone today. And so you see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls his followers calls you both the salt and light. He calls you both the salt and the light of this world. He says this, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under, uh, under a basket, but what do they do? They put a lamp on a lampstand because that's where it belongs. And it gives light to everybody that's in that house. And so he says this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so what is Jesus trying to say in this passage? There are two things I want us to remember here. And the first thing is this. Being an undercover Christian benefits no one. Lights were never meant to be covered. They were meant to be used. I don't know if you've ever seen someone phone light on in their pocket, like you're going to tell them, hey, your light is on. Why? It's not even being used rightly. Looks weird, right? But the second thing I want us to see is that where God has you, listen to me, where God has you is where he wants you. And what I mean by that is God has placed you exactly where you need to be in this moment of history for his purpose. Did you know that there's no other moment in history like right now? And now? And now? (laughs) Check this one out. Paul says in Acts 17 that through one man, Adam, God has made all nations of mankind to live on the earth. Kawhi. 
having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations, Kilauea, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You see, the first thing Paul is trying to say is that God knew exactly where you're going to be in this given moment. That's crazy. You do whatever you want with that. But not only that, God's ultimate plan is that he would make himself known to everyone. How? Not just through creation, you. That's how he's going to make himself known. Why is God not far from anyone? Because you're there. God reveals himself through people, to people, through you. And so when you're the only person at, in your workplace who's a Christian, it's for everyone else to see what Jesus is like, right? Like we complain like, I'm the only one there and everybody's getting all crazy, right? It's just like, yeah, he has you there for a purpose. Like when you're the only person in your household that's a Christian, it's so that everyone else can see how Jesus operates. God is not far from anyone. Why? Because you're there. And so we're not called to shrink back when we feel outnumbered. We're called to press in because God wants to save lives. Amen. And so Jesus is trying to create an urgency within his disciples, and hopefully inside of you. Because in just a few months, they would be the ones to take the gospel throughout the ancient world. But now this story switches over to the blind man. Let's continue in verse 6 and 7. Um says this, uh, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Uh, lot, lots of people asked why clay, why spit, what's going on with that? A lot of scholars I read came up with some good reasoning behind it and it's awesome. Uh, but I just want to point out my brother Josh Beal. Uh, he always says this, where the Bible is silent, we stay silent. But I will say this. The way that Jesus healed people was never the same. It was always different. Some people were healed by the touching of his garment like the bleeding woman. You guys remember that story? And some of them were healed instantly. Boom, by his word. But for this man... He didn't come back seeing until he finished washing the clay out of his eyes. You see, for this man, his healing took time. And if there's one thing that we can see from the miracles that Jesus performed is that God works differently with everyone, everybody. You see, he might be working something out in you that may be different from the person next to you. But whatever the case may be, our job is not to focus on so much on how God does things, but to remember and to remind ourselves that God is doing something. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things, uh, all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This means that even when it doesn't look good, even when it doesn't make sense, like walking through town with mud in your eyes, we should find it in our hearts to trust him today. Find it in our hearts to trust the process. 
You see, what Romans 8.28 is saying is that everyone, everything God does in our lives, everything that takes place, every event, every hardship, every trial, every up and down will always find its way back to the good of our souls. Everything. Nothing is wasted. Nothing. Amen? Amen. Let's finish. To verse 12. Oh, therefore... The neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. And said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. What a way to kind of finish this off. How did you get healed, Jesus? Where is he? I have no idea. This is just kind of how it finishes. I just want to say the best testimony is your testimony. You see, after this, blind man did what he was supposed to do. Jesus eventually fled the scene. And although this man didn't know where Jesus went, we know at the end of this chapter, he knew who Jesus was. If you just keep reading, he knew who Jesus was. The reason why I brought up C.S. Lewis earlier is because everyone in the Gospels had a different opinion about Jesus. Everybody and their moms was divided over the identity of who he was. And what this really tells us is that these people... This crowd, the religious leaders, and everyone around Jesus who had perfect vision, these people who could see Jesus uh, do all that he was doing, every miracle and every sign, did not truly see him at all. And yet this blind man, who had never seen his face, who had never even seen light before, would testify on this day that it was Jesus who healed him. You see, on this day, this man seen so much more than anybody who could see their entire lives. And this is my point. If you're writing anything down. It's not those who are blind that need help seeing, but those who think they can see who are truly blind. I'm going to say that one more time. It's not those who are blind that need help seeing, but those who think they can see that are truly blind. You will, never come to the, you will never come to know the Lord Jesus or see him working in your life if you don't see your need for him. When Jesus preached the Beatitudes, did he say, blessed are the proud in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is he saying? He said, blessed are the ones who don't think they got it. Blessed are the ones who are saying, gosh, I'm tired right now. Blessed are the ones who are saying, I'm broken. I don't got this. Blessed are the ones who don't think they're the. And this is my point. You will never know that your eyes need to be opened until you first realize that they've been closed. You will never know that your eyes need to be opened until you first realize that they've been closed. Second thing. Sometimes you may not be able to always see what God is doing in your life. But scripture reminds us over and over and over and over again that he is working. 
And so whatever your situation might be or whatever situation you might be facing or any maybe suffering right now that you might be going through, let us be reminded of this one thing. The Father says to you and I, I will never leave your side. You see, when Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, in his time of suffering, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at that moment, the Father turned his face away from the Son so that we who put our faith in the Son, the Father would now turn to us and say, I would never leave you nor forsake you. And here's my last point. Every time the Israelites would look up at the pillar of fire, they were reminded of God's presence within their lives. This morning, I just want you to be reminded that God is with you and that God's presence is with you wherever you go. And so this is what we do. We just continuously and constantly every day, not just Sunday, not just Wednesdays, we continue to look back at the cross. We are reminded there of all that God has already done for us. Amen? Amen. Amen.